1: Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and Law Professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the
0: law.
2: Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor and Trial Attorney Stephen Wagner, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you and
1: welcome back in the saddle. Well, thank you, Stephen, and its I know you say as always, but you and Michael Cohen had to, to soldier on without me because I had a chance to go to Alaska to, to visit our 50th, well, actually it was the 49th state that they would point out up there. Yep. Don't <laughs> get your count wrong now. Come on. <laughs> They're pretty picky. But you know, as I've said many times in this show, I, I am from Texas and I had to float the opinion up there in Alaska that those of us in Texas are not always certain that Alaska should be considered the biggest state because we think that when you're ha- measuring land-based mass, that ice shouldn't count.
2: Oh, gosh. Okay.
1: So that's that's Texas' pushback. It is. And I have to tell you, it didn't go very far in Alaska. I saw some of your <laughs> iPhone pictures. Uh, I can't wait to see more of them. It's beautiful, isn't it? it? It is beautiful. But I can tell you one of the things that really comes across is it's a very remote uh, it's a very, very remote state with lots of areas far from the metropolitan areas, and it really is somewhat along the lines of what we think of as the Old West. Now, there's a lot of people in Alaska that are far from police and courts, and it, it reminded me as a lawyer that that there's a lot of places that still rely on Just good old common sense, negotiation, and self-help. Yeah, absolutely,
2: Mitch. You know, I did speak once to a a deputy sheriff who worked in Alaska, and he was talking to me about the response times, and they can really be uh, lengthy. You know, they can be up to 40 minutes to an hour sometimes because of the remoteness.
1: Definitely. And there's a lot of places that if you want that kind of help, it has to fly in. It's not going to drive in. That help's going to fly in. So it, it really it gives you a different perspective on society and the rule of law and how how communities have to to work together, sometimes outside of the immediate uh, access to police, fire, courts, and and the legislature.
2: Yeah, that's right. Well, Mitch, while while you were out, uh, Michael carried the torch in the form of introducing some U.S. Supreme Court cases, and I Uh, I know our plan is not to go over U.S. Supreme Court cases uh, today, at least in earnest, but we did talk about two cases that uh, I'm sharing with you and our listeners because I think we'll probably return to them. Um, One of the cases involved uh, the right of a criminal defendant to have independent access to mental health, (coughs) excuse me, mental health or uh, doctor's. As experts, Uh, what had happened is in one of the lower courts in this case, uh, it was a case out of Wisconsin, and the prosecution and the defense uh, were allowed to share the same expert, defense expert, on the issue of mental uh, deficits or potential stability of the defendant, and it impacted uh, the defendant's right in terms of Uh, sentencing because it it was a capital case, a death penalty case. And it's it's one that I think we may return to because uh, I know here in San Luis Obispo, we do have a state hospital with mentally disordered offenders. So uh, I think we'll find a way to weave it back in. The upshot from that case is that the defendant was entitled. The court ruled that the defendant should be entitled to his own expert rather than having this shared resource kind of uh, system.
1: So, Stephen, is that a a departure from the idea that, or a a beginning of a departure from the idea that expert witnesses are independent third parties, that both sides should be able to have access and tease what they need out of the findings, but that they're not inherently aligned with the prosecution or the defense?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it, Mitch. And I think the high court did review it that way in terms of fairness to the defendant, uh, I think what happened in the lower courts there is that there was uh, an ability to share an ability ability to share the resources and uh, the findings of the expert, meaning that the prosecutor had access to the same information. So uh, it also relates, in many ways, Mitch, to uh, a resource issue because indigent defendants do have a right, pursuant to a a longstanding case, actually out of Oklahoma, uh, called Ake versus Oklahoma, defendants have the right to what they call ancillary services well beyond uh, the assignment or appointment of an attorney. They should also have investigators and in many cases, mental health experts. So
1: we'll stay tuned on that one. Let me ask you one more question on that because I think this is really fascinating. Do you think the court gave it much greater weight because it was a death penalty case or do you really think this is the type of ruling that will, uh, let's say, it went all the way down to, you know, a, a lower level charge. Do you do you think it's the gravity of the situation that influenced the court, or just the principle of it?
2: You know, you know I, th- I th- it's the gravity of the offense and the proceeding, Mitch, that I think catches the attention of the courts in many ways. Uh, however, I think it's it was such an alarming issue. Uh, that it really did get the court's attention, uh, even in a setting other than the penalty phase, so including uh, the guilt phase. So I think it was so impactful to the court that uh, there's really more universal reason to look at it.
1: Can I can I toss in another one that I think we're going to see more? Uh, sure. And have to discuss again. I know we you and I talked about Trinity Lutheran, which was the the Supreme Court case that dealt with. Uh, church versus state issues. in this case Trinity Lutheran was a church that wanted to participate in a in getting materials for their playground and the state said that since they were a church they weren't allowed to take advantage of the state issued uh, discounts or free materials and the Supreme Court said no that that was not the case. It was a secular activity. A playground was open to the community. But, but I just have to bring tease one more thing out of it that I, I found fascinating. And I didn't pick it up when we first talked about this case. And evidently there was a footnote in that case in which said, this case involves express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing, we do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. So, we had a footnote in that case, in which the the court rendered an opinion, but said, we want you to look at this in the narrowest possible manner related to the specific facts of this case. Right? And that in and of itself is not that unusual, except what's so amazing to me and the reason I think we are going to see this issue back in front of the court soon, that not even all nine members agreed to the footnote. Right. So now you have this extraordinary footnote, but it was only, I think, three of the, of the justices signed on to the footnote. Three others had a dissent that didn't include that and three others were yet somehow otherwise involved in the decision that it included it. And so here you have a, a, a case in which a footnote appeared to be really specific and yet I'm not clear exactly what the court's going to say on this issue next time it comes up.
2: Thou shall watch carefully for footnotes. <laughs> that's my takeaway from there. I think that's that's a great point, Mitch. Uh, and it, it, it just signals just how carefully uh, all the words are scrutinized. And,
1: and I think, I think it, it tells us that it goes to that same question that you're raising of how how does this get applied? And how does it go from a Supreme Court case to actual application on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's the string that ties the case you referenced, which is a changing standard for defendants' rights. In this case that I just mentioned, it's the possibility that there could be changing standards as to how we define the separation of church and state. And then if I could, let me just throw one more that came up this week, which is this ongoing discussion on the U.S. travel ban, and what does the Supreme Court think it should or shouldn't be? Because that just came out with an updated opinion just this week, didn't it? It did. Uh, And so in this case we had, as I'm sure everyone knows by this time, you and I have talked about this case at least twice before on the show, and this is where The current administration issued a travel ban against initially seven countries, limited then to six in a rewrite. We've had several federal courts that uh, put a stay on application of the ban. Then we had the Supreme Court that weighed in and said uh, a part of it had to be limited because in, in the part that's now back in front of the court this past week, That if you had family ties, uh, uh, an immigrant into the country had higher rights of access. Refugees perhaps had lower access rights. We immediately had a federal court that then challenged the administration's definition of family, close family. And then I thought, and quite an extraordinary thing this week... The court, the Supreme Court in this case, came back out and said, okay, there's confusion about what we meant by close family, grandparents count, even though the administration said grandparents don't, and now we have to wait and see, well, what happens at the border? You know,
2: it's amazing that a term like family, if you look at that word, can just go unchecked for so long and just hang out there without a specific definition. You know, so in many ways, I'm not surprised that there was a need to sharpen that definition. Uh, And as you indicated, the latest is that it should include grandparents.
1: Yeah. And so now, uh, obviously, every time, you know, I I think we're going to see challenges uh, in laws. And and initially, the administration said, you know, cousins don't count. And they had this whole list of who doesn't count. And we have the federal court in Hawaii that continues to push back and you know to remind everybody the supreme court essentially said they gave a partial opinion and they'll hear arguments in October but that's after the ban will have already, the temporary ban will have already expired so i find i find all of this confusing i can imagine what it must be for those who are trying to to parse out who should get visas and who should <laughs> it, it, it gives us a perfect opportunity to keep that
2: discussion going because it's uh, it's definitely a fluid topic for sure
1: and can I throw I know we don't have a lot I don't want to run us right into the break but I do need to tease one more I did notice that the court announced that in their next October session they're going to bring issues related to cell phone searches and cell phone records back before the court one of our yes. favorite topics.
2: Yes, they are. And you're introducing that right before a break, which yes. is tempting me to talk about it. No, uh, we should talk but, about it after the break. Okay, so we tease two things. Mentally disordered offenders. I want to return to that topic. And that was why I referenced that ache case. And now you've introduced uh, the topic of cell phone searches. And you're right. That is going to receive high court scrutiny again real soon. So there's two topics we'll return to. Uh, because we're coming up on the break, let's at least introduce what we want to talk about in the balance of the program, and that is self-driving
1: vehicles or oh, autonomous vehicles. It might become more, more popular as a topic than even drones. What do you think? Oh, my gosh. No, I doubt it. Drones,
2: were, they were crying out for, for competition. <laughs> so uh, when we come back from the break, Mitch, let's talk about autonomous vehicles or so-called self-driving vehicles. There are a host of issues, a number of issues that we can talk about in connection with liability and safety issues, both criminal issues and civil issues. So when we return, we'll pick up on that topic. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. We're going out on a short break. When we come back, We will talk about autonomous or self-driving vehicles. Don't go away.
3: Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information,
1: This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com.
4: Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit MinimusInstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40-60% to while delivering state-of-the-art care.
5: Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at Shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N.com.
2: Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we are about to commence our discussion about autonomous vehicles or so-called self-driving vehicles. And Mitch, this is a topic you and I have discussed in the past.
1: It is indeed. Uh, In fact, I remember in what I think was our first year we had a young man who was working on self, on the self-driving car software in Palo Alto. This was early, before we even had any of the cars legally on the road being tested. And he was discussing how challenging it is to identify what, what we don't really think about is all the data, just the, the sheer volume of data that needs to be plugged into the software to identify what a vehicle does when given a certain piece of information. Yeah, so,
2: you know, it's hard to really pick a great place to start, Mitch, but it's in, you know, the autonomous vehicles and self-driving vehicles are in the news uh, lately, um, quite prolifically actually, because there's some congressional action, I think, that's also paving the way uh, to allow the release of self-driving vehicles. where do you want to begin in terms of uh, our discussion?
1: Well, let me talk just a little about what what I think is going on as far as how they're hitting our roads because I think that raises some of the questions because I think you and I are most concerned about the, lo- the legal implications, right? And liability because the the technology of it is is a whole different area that we don't address. But the minute you put you know, a, a one-ton or one and a half-ton piece of machinery on the road, and and start sending it out like a projectile out among uh, humans. The question is, what happens, and who's liable when something goes wrong? Right? Isn't that the fundamental question that you and I are worried about? Absolutely. And and so, what I noticed in the the article is that that just came out this past week was they're talking about. Uh, Waymo, which is the former Google car, has been spun off into its own corporate entity and that their cars have now uh, driven more than 3 million miles. Right. right.
2: That's California, Arizona, and Texas primarily, right?
1: Exactly. And then Tesla has claimed that its cars have driven more than 100 million miles, but not in fully autonomous mode. They're just testing portions of it, so it it made me immediately think of who's going to have liability. So they've Google clearly spun this off into its own corporation. So if Waymo is running the cars and something goes wrong with the car, I would assume that if you're representing a plaintiff, Stephen, you're going to look to Waymo as the possible defendant, right? That's so, is right. that really one of the first questions we're going to ask? Is who's going to accept the fundamental liability of the operation of of these vehicles?
2: I think that's right. I think, you know, if you looked at it in terms of uh, how a lawsuit could potentially uh, develop, I would assume that what would trigger it or start it would be some type of a collision or a crash involving an autonomous vehicle, right, Mitch? And then I think the action centers on looking at all parties that may be at fault. And typically you look at the driver first, that again leads to the vehicle, which then again leads to the technical side and all of the R&D and the contributors to the vehicle. So it, excuse me, it could turn in to quite a crowded uh, civil lawsuit in terms of number of parties. So
1: and so that Sorry. part of it's not all that unusual, right? Because what you no. just went down is the ladder of liability, that, you, that when you were a private uh, attorney representing a plaintiff, that would be absolutely natural for you. There's a wreck, and the question is, who's at fault? And you just walk down the issue. There's, there's the driver, there's probably the other driver, there could be a pedestrian, there could be a failure of a signal light, there could be a vehicle mechanical malfunction. All right. All of yeah, those things are common.
2: Absolutely, Mitch. And 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 this pun is intended. You look under the hood. You look at everything, uh, and you look at all potential actors that may have contributed in a negligent fashion. So it could raise products liability issues, and that could lead to the software developers. So it could be very wide-reaching uh, in terms of who may be liable. You know, Mitch. What I find interesting is when you look at the recent stories, there is quite a, quite a, a blitz on the technology side, wherein there seems to be healthy competition in terms of getting these autonomous vehicles out on the road. What I don't see, and it will be a topic that we're going to talk about, uh, is a devotion to the liability issues and these companies actually stepping up and addressing those in a preemptive fashion. I think. That's a gap area, and it's crying out for attention.
1: So let me ask you let me just throw this idea out there. what we've We've talked before in the issue of products about the concept of strict liability, and there have been uh, certain products that, legislatively and then through case law, have been granted the responsibility of strict liability, and essentially that says If a corporation chooses to put a product out into public use that is inherently dangerous, that any injury that it causes, period, just any injury that it causes, the liability then goes to the manufacturer with the assumption that they have benefited by the, uh, financially benefited by being able to sell it and market it to the community. Right? I know that's an overly simple that thing.
2: That is accurate. What I would add there is that unless there is misuse okay. by the consumer or end user, uh, what you've said is 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 accurate.
1: So, what about the idea that it, you mentioned possible legislation? So, what about the idea if if se- the self-driving car companies, the Waymos, the Teslas, were challenged to say? Look, if you feel so strongly about this, why don't you voluntarily agree to manufacture and distribute your vehicles right from the start under a strict liability doctrine? Where you say you believe in it, then you say strict liability, you will be liable for any and all damages except for what you discussed, which is misuse or abuse. What do you think?
2: What a proposal. Mitch, um, if you floated that proposal, you would be in the boardroom for at least 72 hours. <laughs> so I, I, I like where you're going there. I mean, because you're speaking about the, the potential for harm. And I, I'm, I'm assuming you agree with me in terms of the need for companies to actually address the liability issues. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
2: Okay, because I mean, if you look at the competition, and I'm thinking about some of the big names, uh, Google, Waymo, um, and we now have major, big, big car manufacturers that are all jumping. Traditional car manufacturers that are all jumping in to get into this, uh, into this industry, into this niche area. Uh, once again, I believe, and although I'm not a marketing expert, that that more. Emphasis should be placed on the safety concerns, because as we've discussed before, I believe that we take driving for granted. It's not easy to drive. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of multitasking and divided attention skills, and uh, I just don't see all those things addressed. And I think some of the recent articles that speak to the hazards uh, are appropriately highlighting those issues.
1: Yeah, so one applying strict liability would address some of it. Uh, what I, I like you, I've been reading these articles, and it appears. And I always wonder how much of this is the back office marketing efforts of the of the big companies who are represented by you know the large advertising marketing companies. But you know, there's a there's an every time there's an incident, there's kind of a rush to determine well. What did the driver do? And and in fact, it appears that in a couple of cases that have actually gotten into the courts, uh, two of the most prominent ones, the findings were that the driver repeatedly ignored warnings from the vehicle itself to take control back over. And then failing to do that, there was then an incident, and therefore the driver was found to be liable, not the vehicle itself.
2: You know, and... and there's a great example of a combination between the technology and the human factor issue, which are, I think, inextricably tied. Because this notion of a driver just hopping into the driver's seat, putting his feet up or her feet up, and pushing a button is just not working. There's always going to be uh, interplay between driver and the autonomous vehicle.
1: So I think you've you've really outlined what we need to be watching for, and and one of the things we enjoy doing on this show is taking what's what on the face of it seems like it might be a simple issue. You know, when the cars are ready, they'll be allowed on the road, no problem. Well, that's not exactly true. From the legal standpoint, we we still need to define how these vehicles are going to fit within the existing structure of liability laws. So you've pointed it out. Uh, there's operating, you know, it's not only the driver operating it, I assume there's going to be a maintenance question. So what if there was a maintenance light flashing? Uh, for example, I have a warning light on my dash right now that says uh, I'm due for an oil change, right? And that that comes right up on my digital display and I can't see the temperature outside or any of the other things that are under that display because it's covered over digitally by the warning that I have uh, an oil change necessary. So I would assume that if my car seized up because it has now failed to have proper maintenance and that seizing up then caused an injury to another party, if you were the plaintiff's attorney, Stephen, you would probably say, well, that's that's driver error, right? And that's still going to happen possibly with Uh, Autonomous cars, right? Yeah, no, it is mentioned.
2: You know, there's an affirmative duty on the part of all drivers, all motorists, to ensure that their vehicle is safe when they go out to the roadway. So that's a really good point. A lot of people miss that. Uh, Drivers have an affirmative obligation. So I don't think uh, a driver of an autonomous vehicle would be in a position where they could just dish off, or defer, or blame technology or make an argument that they assumed everything was uh, uh, okay or, or safe. There, you, you make a good point. There still is an obligation to look at the, the panel and uh, all the warning signals.
0: And I want
1: to save this for the last segment because I know we're going to want to talk a little more about it. We don't have enough time in this segment. But I do want to float this idea that you've talked many times about black box data and you've talked about how it's used in accident reconstruction with uh, the data that on uh, every car from, what age is it? What year did they start so doing that? 1996 forward, 1996 forward. Yeah, so you've talked about that data that's captured by this black box uh, in a vehicle that talks about you know, speed and operation. And it, it could talk about maintenance and uh, who knows all the data that's in there. Uh there's a Supreme court case that's coming up. I teased it before that goes to the issue of, of cell phone data and whether a warrant is necessary to get tracking data on locations for cell phones. But don't you think that's likely to come into play on the issue related to black box data in autonomous cars? Absolutely. That's want to track. A drug dealer, uh, can you get access to the black box data that shows the GPS location of that alleged <laughs> drug dealer or robbery suspect over the past hour or two hours or two days?
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: yeah absolutely. so electronic data recorders or
2: so-called black boxes, as you've indicated, are... In most modern vehicles now, and it allows uh, investigators, those investigating collisions, mostly in law enforcement, to go back and recreate what may have happened, Uh, and now with the advent of autonomous vehicles, that's probably going to become uh, a very robust area also. So let's expand when we come, on we come,
1: that. When we come back, I want you to talk about the third-party doctrine and how this is all going to come into play with these boxes.
2: All right, we'll do that. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion of autonomous vehicles or so-called self-driving vehicles. And we've introduced a couple of the liability concerns, and we'll expand upon that discussion and also talk about some criminal aspects, potentially, because after all, There could be uh, a component involving criminal cases. Stay tuned, we'll be right back.
5: If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org.
1: The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law.
2: Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about autonomous vehicles or self-driving vehicles. And Mitch, before the break,
1: you introduced the unique topic or facet. So I want to ask you two things, Stephen. And you've brought these up in different uh, scenarios. But let's assume we have this autonomous vehicle that's able to operate by itself. And let's assume that it's going to be collecting a huge amount of data, both on the maintenance of the vehicle, on the operation of the vehicle, on the location of the vehicle, uh, and maybe on participant or or uh, whoever you know the in, whoever's using the vehicle. Information about it. Uh, we've talked about: Do the police or does the police have access, or does a prosecutor have access to? digital data, and we've primarily talked about it in terms of cell phones, right? We have. What about access to all of this data in the car? Are warrants going to be necessary? And before, before you get into that, then I want you to segue that into, is there some reasonable expectation of privacy of what you do in a car that's operating in the public domain?
2: Okay. I'll take it on. <laughs> it's, I think you just hit me with a trifecta. I was going to say I, it was a compound question, <laughs> but then you layered on. Uh, so let me set it up this way, Mitch, because those are all intriguing issues. Uh, first of all, I guess it's best to frame it as a hypothetical very briefly. And none of this would be addressed unless there was really a need to uh, seek this information. So, in other words, something needs to happen, some
1: kind now, of... Let's event. assume there was a robbery, so, and uh, a vehicle was alleged to be involved. And they've okay, identified the uh, witnesses, seen the vehicle, and now you as a prosecutor want to build the case on that vehicle and the, the occupants. Okay.
2: So, in the case of a robbery, um, what you've done there is you've, you may have taken the electronic data recorder issue um, out of the equation. However, it's still possible. What um, about GPS data? Yeah, that's true. So let's put it this way. First of all, the car itself would potentially be an item of evidence. So we need to assume now that somehow a car is connected with a robbery. So the suspects used the vehicle and law enforcement obviously wants to know where the vehicle was at all times during the incident. So in an effort to confirm that information, There would be efforts undertaken by law enforcement to access GPS coordinates, um, any kind of tracking devices, software devices that are built into that vehicle. And I'll even include the electronic data recorder, although it's a little bit of a stretch uh, because typically the electronic data recorder records recent events or driver inputs in the vehicle, braking, steering, uh, and things like that talk
1: distance traveled, though, for that's track- true. Relation. That's true.
2: Which which may well be relevant.
1: So, and, w- and let me ask you, what about fingerprint data? If you had to use your fingerprint to unlock the door to get in, uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> see, you're really piling on, Mitch. I am. <laughs> so I see these cars collecting this enormous amount of data, and I want to know: Do you have the right to get it? Yeah. No, you're right. They're computers with wheels.
2: Right is really what what's happening now, and and, and actually, you know, Mitch. We don't have to necessarily be talking about autonomous vehicles, even modern vehicles with all of the, uh, the specifications and, and the technology that's embedded. So um, the, the upshot here is that a warrant is going to be required. So that would be uh, official permission in the form of a written request to a judge or a magistrate uh, articulating why that information is needed how it would be needed, and the exact scope. So um, there was a time, as you know, that warrants were not necessarily required. We talked about this in cell phone searches. Of course, that's changed. Warrants are required now to get into cell phone data. So the same is going to apply with crossover application to access to GPS, coordinates, any kind of EDR information uh, in order to get that information. Now, the tug-of-war, Mitch, and this is going to happen, will be that there's a proprietary interest by one of the software developers, probably, Mm -hmm. who may well do what when they're requested to turn over information? I'll let you take it.
1: Well, they say it's not theirs to turn over, or or they can say it is theirs to turn over. I mean, that's the third-party doctrine, which says that if you have voluntarily given your information to a third party, then your constitutional rights may not extend to that data.
2: Yeah, that's right Mitch, and you know this isn't uh, and I I don't have the answer to a couple of the novel issues connected to whether a software developer has a valid right to decline or refuse to turn over information. So what I can predict, and I don't think it's a real bold prediction, is that there would be some pushback uh, from a software developer if they are requested to turn over proprietary information. So what could happen is that sometimes things are kept under seal, but it could get complicated.
1: Yeah, so I think these are going to be, you're right, it's not necessarily the autonomous nature of the vehicle that is going to create these scenarios, but one can presume The very nature of an autonomous vehicle is that it is going to be far more digitally loaded with data collection because that's kind of the nature of the vehicle. And therefore, there's all of this data that's going to be uh, possibly involved in both civil cases due to liability or criminal cases.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, Mitch. And, you know, in the criminal cases, the reason I wanted to introduce, uh, you know, driving-related crimes, so obviously impaired driving uh, or involuntary or volu- or manslaughter-type charges, or even second-degree murder cases that involve crashes, the vehicle used is absolutely a critical piece of evidence. So in those cases, uh, there is no doubt that law enforcement wants to review from stem to stern everything in that vehicle, including all features. And if we look at that scenario wherein a autonomous vehicles involved, I just think that it opens up so many different sources or access points for information that it it creates a lot of issues, a lot of issues.
1: And and let me, I know this is fairly tangential to this, but it's it's not necessarily unique to autonomous vehicles. But again, I could see this coming more into play. Uh, Is in a criminal setting, let's say... Is there a reasonable expectation of privacy of something you're doing in your vehicle when it's out on the public streets?
2: You know, know, the law has remained uh, consistent on that issue, Mitch, and that is that there's a reduced expectation of privacy when a driver takes a car out to the roadway. So uh, although there is some privacy interest, it's said to be reduced because By voluntarily taking your car out on a public roadway, you are, in essence, displaying the vehicle and, in in fact, also displaying the contents, Mitch. There's been many cases where contraband has been seen in the back of a truck, for instance, or in a plain view kind of setting where it can be seen without intrusive uh, efforts.
1: See, I see, I, I know it seems like a leap, but I see so many parallels between the evolution of the privacy and warrant requirements with a cell phone and these type of digital vehicles that we now see. So, for example, I could see where there could be a password required to open the trunk, right? So we talked about can somebody be forced to give police the password to open up their phone so that they could check to see if, if the cases that came up were in drug transactions uh, or in, I think there's one in a child abuse case. And so the the question is, can they seize the phone? Yes. Do they need a warrant to be able to force them to give the password? Uh, The answer is yes, except in exigent circumstances. And can't you see the same thing happening as we continue to digitize and put security features on these vehicles?
2: Absolutely, Mitch. I referenced before it's a mobile phone or a cell phone on wheels. And I mean, let me loop back to that. Based on the the level of sophisticated technology and the software technology that's now being stored or developed and used in autonomous vehicles, I think your analogy on point. Uh, it's very similar to a storage device. Uh, it's act, it is, you know, the autonomous vehicles are constantly storing information, saving information, and let's not forget, Mitch, that there's a manufacturer's interest in storing information so that they can stay ahead of the game and track trends.
1: So let me add the, the last piece to it. I'm going to just I'm kind of at the end here, but as, as we're thinking through all of these applications, uh, I wonder to the extent we want the vehicle to become responsible in a sense of certain standards of care. So, for example, when we were in Alaska, I, I was surprised to find out that when you go into a bar, they ask you to see your driver's license. And it doesn't matter about age, although they check that. Obviously, I'm well past <laughs> the age in which I would normally be carted in a bar, but it's because in Alaska, they put alcohol restrictions on driver's licenses themselves, and, and therefore, If you've been convicted of an alcohol-related offense, there can be a restriction placed on your driver's license that you cannot be served in a bar. And so I'm wondering if that, that. too, becomes a possibility where you you are required to have that put into the locking device or unlocking or starting device of the vehicle.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, so… You know now, Mitch, there are uh, interlock devices that are used and and they're actually required for those that have suffered convictions for certain driver-related offenses, uh, chiefly or mostly DUI offenses. So, yeah, great point. Uh, That's going to be an embedded issue or need to be addressed with autonomous vehicles also, for sure.
1: So we started it by just talking about all the data that these cars need to learn and the you know the initial concern was how does it respond to you know police and fire and weather and all of the million things and I think you actually mentioned that in the cases you deal with for impaired driving you talk about how much information the human brain processes to be a proper driver right yes yes and that's what I typically call multitasking,
2: Mitch, and I usually preface it by saying I think we take driving for granted. The demands placed on a driver both inside the cabin and outside the cabin are multi-multi-faceted, and I make a point of illustrating that whenever I prosecute a DUI case. So, that's one of the main hazard points that I see with autonomous vehicles.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's... it's- i don't have a hard time believing that the vehicles can be taught or programmed to fundamentally function and I, I thought what was interesting in one of the articles that led to this story today or this show today was that they showed they 're talking about the the dramatic reduction in errors that the vehicles make. Uh, because they're able to program so many more scenarios in. But I, but I was thinking about what you said about what it takes for a driver to deal with all the issues. And it's all the unexpected things. And I, and I go back to the very part we started, the strict liability question that, yeah, maybe these vehicles can do it 95, 97, 98% of the time. But boy, those 2% could be huge liability issues, couldn't they? Absolutely, Mitch. Great discussion. Well, thanks, Stephen. As always, you can hear a, a recoup of today's story on our archives on voiceamerica.com or wagnerandwinnick.com. We will be revisiting many of these issues as they come back into the legal arena. As we were we'll suggest to you every week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer
4: i never finished college i had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life i wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people but i didn't know i could go to law school without a four-year degree I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer?
3: You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu.
1: This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com.
4: Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit MinimusInstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40-60% to while delivering state-of-the-art care.
5: Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is, you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepherd Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at ShepherdMullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com.